So we've been talking about the life that God desires us to live, right? And we saw, we observed that in John 10, 10, Jesus said, I have come so that you can have life, right? And that you could have it, what? Abundantly, okay? And we looked at the word abundant and we saw that it means that first of all, it satisfies us and makes us content with our life. And then it overflows out of us to influence and to bless uh, the people around us, the abundant life. And then we kind of ask the question, you know, uh, well, how do you, how do you increase this life that God is desiring to give us? And Peter, in Second Peter chapter 1, uh, told us that, you know, it comes through putting your faith in Jesus and in particular his power and his promises. And uh, he says in Second uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, his divine power has granted to us, given to us, right? It's granted to us, uh, listen, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything you need to live the life that God's trying to give us, you already have. Christianity is not about, you know, well, I start with Jesus and then I go on to find some other esoteric experience that's going to add to my spirituality. No, no, no. Everything you need is in Jesus. And Christianity is starting with faith in Jesus and then discovering you have way more in Jesus than you imagine. And you begin to discover all that he has really brought to us uh, through his um, love for us and through his actions on the cross and through the resurrection. And uh, Peter says, you know, uh, when we put our faith in uh, Jesus, everything we need for life and godliness becomes ours through the knowledge, right, the increasing knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He's calling us to be like himself, his own glory and excellence. Okay, and so I think that's important to uh, remember Uh, Colossians, where we read from this morning already, uh, in Colossians uh, chapter 1 and verse uh, 26 and 7, um, Paul writes to this church and he says, you know, um, uh, there's been a mystery that nobody knew until Jesus came. A mystery in the Bible is something that is in God's mind but hasn't been revealed until God's time to reveal it. And so Paul writes to the Colossian church, and um, here's, here's what he says. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know about the, uh, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. By the way, the Bible calls Christians saints. Now, some of us are comfortable with that, and some of us just know better, right? And And we just, you know, kind of resist that idea. But in God's eyes, his children are saints, right? It's kind of like grandparents. Their grandkids are saints, no matter, you know, whatever anybody else says, grandma rules. So there's this mystery that's been hidden, that's now been revealed to us. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, not the Jewish people, the Gentiles, people like most of us, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. This is a huge mystery that people haven't known that God, by his spirit, is willing to actually get inside of your life. 
It's been a mystery for a long time, but now it's been made known, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Someday we are going to be what we would think of as a saint because of Christ living in us uh, bit by bit, here a little, there a little, line upon line, you know, uh, chipping away at who we used to be in order that we might become the person that God created us to be. And so it's kind of interesting. And then in the second chapter, talking about Jesus, Paul says, you know, I'm struggling in my efforts, he says uh, to this church. Um, I'm struggling that your hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love uh, to each, uh, to reach all of the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And then he says this, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In whom are hidden. Here's this big mystery. Christ will come and live inside of us, right? And in him is hidden all the mysteries, right, of wisdom and knowledge, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's a huge thing to have Christ living inside of us. And then Peter goes on in the next verse, and he says, you know, how do we get more of Christ in us? And uh, Peter says this in the fourth verse. He says, he has not only granted us, you know, everything we need to live life, a life of godliness, but he has also granted to us precious and very great, I would say priceless, promises that he has made to us. And when we believe him about the promises that he's made, we actually become partakers of God's nature. How does this abundant life actually get inside of us in real time? Well, when we believe, when we look at these promises that the Lord makes to us, that the scriptures make to us, and we believe them, all of a sudden we begin to see things the way he sees things. We begin to think of ourselves the way he sees us. And we begin to take on the divine nature that we can, you know, return to what God made us to be. And so this morning, I would like to invite you to think with me about uh, God's promise that if you put your faith in Jesus, he will forgive all of our sins. The promise that God made that he will forgive all of our sins. I call it a priceless promise. Now, over the years, um, I've spent time with many Christians, okay, um, who have done some really terrible things in their lives, in their past or whatever, and uh, who were convicted that God can't ever forgive them for what they did, or God won't ever forgive them for what they did. They've just done terrible things. And, um, you know, they've, they've lived with this. They live with the guilt of it. They live with the shame of it and so forth. And um, they are unaware of what God's attitude is toward them because of, you know, this ongoing guilt uh, that kind of rattles their cage. And so uh, they have uh, told me time and time again, you know, I have prayed and prayed and asked God to forgive me and forgive me and forgive me for the same thing for years. And I don't sense that he has really forgiven me. 
And so in thinking about uh, some of those, some are pretty dramatic kinds of things, I want to suggest to you that uh, the only solution to that kind of dilemma is faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, okay? And uh, the issue of sin coming between God and us is over. It's settled at the cross. It's really, really good news. But you've got to believe it. And if you don't believe it, you're going to live with kind of the consequences. Remember the first part of our verse, John 10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. God's wanting to give us this abundant life, but we have an enemy, and he comes and tries to steal and take away the life that God's trying to give us. And so um, this issue was settled at the cross, and I want to suggest to you that God's forgiveness is a present reality that paves the way for God's spirit to take up residence in our life. God's forgiveness, right, is a present reality that paves the way for God's spirit to come and live inside of our lives. Um, and, And really, the abundant life is God wanting to live his life through us. But if you're a believer and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 and 8, uh, we have this promise that uh, God makes for us, right? In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, I love it when it says according to. It doesn't say out of the riches of his grace, like let's take a little tiny piece of grace and put it over here on DeVries and see if we can make something of him. No, according to the riches of his grace. How rich is God in grace? It's unending. And according to that measure, God has forgiven us. According to the riches of his grace, he's forgiven us, which I think is just huge, you know? And, um, and, and then the eighth verse says, you know, which he lavished upon us. God's not stingy with his grace. God's forgiven us according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished on us. Do you believe that? Do you feel like that? Does that, has that gotten like from your head where you say, well, yeah, I read it in the Bible, so yeah, it's got to be true and I believe it. But down to your heart where you wake up in the morning and you say, God has lavished his grace on me. I mean, th- that's the promise, right? That God has lavished his grace. Or um, Romans 8.1, you're probably familiar with this. Romans chapter 8, very uh, popular passage of scripture starts out like this. Therefore, there is therefore, now, right now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe it? That God does not condemn anybody for anything who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you live like that? You know, uh, the passage of scripture that we read talks about, you know, uh, somebody owing God this huge debt which they couldn't pay and God forgives the whole thing, right? And then he goes and finds some 
you know, brother of his that owes him a couple bucks and he grabs him by the neck and throws him in jail until he pays up. And God says, that person does not understand my grace and my forgiveness uh, that, that I've given. And so uh, Jesus, you know, said, look, the truth will set you free. And this is the truth. The truth will set you free. So if you're living with guilt and you're living with shame and you're you know, struggling to embrace the forgiveness that God created on the cross, uh, you're living in untruth because the truth would set you free from that kind of thing. Uh, you might remember when Jesus first started his ministry, right? When he first, you know, when he was 30 years old and he came on the scene and John the Baptist had been his forerunner and so forth. And so uh, we read in John 1, 29, that uh, the next day Jesus, he, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said what? Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of what? The world. The world, the whole world. Do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus came to take away the sins of the whole world. Um, would it be true, would you agree with me if I said to you, you know what, God gathered up all the sins of all the people, of all the world, of all times, Old Testament people, New Testament people, us people, and people not even born yet. Right? And he gathered up all of those sins that anybody would ever commit and put them on the shoulders of Jesus and put them on the cross and allowed him to suffer for all the sins of all the world. Would you agree with that? Would you say, yeah, that's what happened? Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. To be sin. Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took all the sins of all the people of all the world of all times and put it on Jesus and allowed him to pay the price for all the sins of all people of all time. If we just back up a couple verses in, um, uh, let's see here, verse 18, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the, reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God said, look, I'm going to do this for you, and I'm going to give you a ministry. I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to give you the ministry of reconciliation. What's that? Next verse. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting, how's God doing that? Look at this. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So God forgave all the sins of all the world, right, if you buy that, and then he entrusted to us the message of reconciliation, which means you and I can go to any person who's struggling with guilt and shame or any person who's messed up in life, which is basically everybody in the world, and we can announce to them that we've got really, really great news. God who made you forgives you. It's such a, a, a blessing to... 
uh, think back about these different people who were living with guilt and professing to be Christians and to be able to announce to them, listen, God's not counting your trespasses against you anymore. He put them on Jesus. They're off of you and on to Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus, you're clean. And, you know, a light every once in a while, not always, but a light comes on. It's like, really? Is that really true? And all of a sudden, you know, a transformation begins to happen. And uh, I think it's so good to be able to just know we can go to anybody and have really great news for them. In um, uh, Colossians, back in Colossians uh, chapter 2 and verse uh, 13 and 14, um, again, I think Paul talks sort of the same thing. And you um, raised him, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. Wow. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. How forgiven are we? There is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wouldn't it be cool if in the church we took God's position on everybody else and said, we will never condemn anybody in this church because they're already forgiven. And we're not going to go against God who says they're forgiven and hold them to something they did wrong. It's radical. It's what Jesus did for us. It's the gospel. How forgiven are we? Uh, there is no condemnation. Uh, Romans, and uh, you know, I'm just bouncing around here, but saying the same kind of thing in Romans chapter 6 and uh, verse, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. Uh, here's, here's, what, here's what Paul says. For if while we were enemies of God, right? While we're still stuck in our sins, we're enemies. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Reconciled means what? To become friends, right? If you reconcile with somebody, it means you become friends. It means you restore harmony to we reconciled, right? And so if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, Paul says, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? It's kind of like, you know, forgiveness sets the stage, sets the table for the meal, which is the life that Christ wants to come and give to us and live through us. How much more are we going to be saved from the wrath of God by the life that Christ uh, puts in us. Uh, this is an issue, you know, of whenever there's an issue in a, in a relationship, somebody has to go first, right? If you have a little spat with your wife or whatever, somebody, you know, and we're kind of not talking to each other for a little while, somebody's got to go first and have enough love to offer forgiveness, right? And then the other person has to be humble enough to accept the forgiveness. And then there's reconciliation, and then we can get on with life again. Uh, I, am, I have come, Jesus said, that you might have life. So God's 
disposition toward you, whoever you are, whatever you've done, is he loves you. He's already gotten rid of the sin that would create a barrier, and so he can say that he loves you, for God so loves the world. We're forgiven by his death, but we're saved by his life, by his resurrection, according to Paul. So suppose you had a friend. Uh, I'm sure you do have friends, but let's just suppose you have a friend. And uh, let's call him Adam, uh, your friend Adam. And uh, suppose Adam dies. And um, you know what? You want to help Adam because he's your friend and you care about him and so forth. And you have a certain amount of power. But uh, the problem is that Adam died because of a disease. And so you want to help him. He died. You want to help him. If you, um, if you cure his disease for him, let's say he died of heart failure, and if you cure his disease, he's still dead. Doesn't really help him, right? And if you just give him life and you don't cure his disease, he's going to have life, but what's going to happen? He's just going to die again. You've got two problems. You've got to cure his disease, and then you've got to give him life. And so... We read in the Bible that Adam of Adam and Eve, right? That's what happened to him. Only his disease of sin and death spread to all people. We were all in Adam. And until we become in Christ, you know, we have these two problems. We've got the disease of sin that's killing us. And uh, we're spiritually dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. And so God gets rid of the sin on the cross and brings new life uh, in order that uh, Jesus might come and give us abundant life. So I want to say when we're focused on sin and we're focused on guilt, we're preoccupied with the thing that God has already dealt with. And when we become preoccupied with what's already settled, we squeeze out the possibility of becoming preoccupied with what God wants to do today, which is to put the life of Christ in us, which is to put his spirit in us and give us more of his life that we might become increasingly more like Christ. And uh, you, you might remember in Second Peter chapter 1 where we you know, saw this connection between embracing the promises and the the uh, divine nature of God taking up residence in us, right after that, Paul goes on to say, look, add to your faith these virtues. You remember this passage? And he's like, you know, add to your faith this and this and this and this. Like, this is what you should be preoccupied with, adding to your faith Christ-likeness. And then he gets all the way down, and he says this in uh, the eighth verse. He says, if these qualities that he's just enumerated are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Remember, God has given us a ministry. Remember, God has given us abundant life that's supposed to spill over onto other people. We get the privilege of announcing to people the great news that they're already forgiven. God is not holding your trespasses against you. This is great. Okay? But in order to be fruitful in that, we've got to increase in these qualities that Peter enumerates for us. And then the next verse says this, for whoever lacks these qualities, 
If you don't grow in your knowledge, if you don't go to Sokol's class and grow in your understanding of Scripture and, and uh, take advantage of this and, and the different opportunities that God puts in front of us, he says, Forever who, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten, okay, having forgotten that he was cleansed already from his former sins. Like if I'm so preoccupied with guilt and what I've done in the past and I can't get over it and so forth, it it hampers me from being able to live the life that God is now trying to give me. And, And Peter says, you know, when you live like that, it's like you've forgotten what God really did on the cross on a personal level. And uh, again, Paul says the same thing in Romans 6, 10. And uh, I, I really like the way that uh, Hebrews talks about this. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, um, nobody really knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Nobody's sure. People speculate on different people. But nobody's sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. But it's in the Bible. It's in the canon. And basically, Hebrews is comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament or the old law, the old covenant, to the gospel and to Jesus. And so in chapter 10 and verse 1, uh, the author of Hebrews is going to help us understand what it means that we're actually forgiven. And uh, he says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near to God through the law. Ten Commandments, first five books of the Bible, called the law. And you remember God started out with the Jewish people and said, you know, if, if, if you live like this, you and I will be tight and, you know, we'll go on and you're my chosen people and this is what uh, I will uh, influence the whole world through you and so on. And, uh, but it never happened. But there was this whole sacrificial system, right, that, that God evolved that people were slaughtering animals on a regular basis in order to uh, cover over their sins. And so you remember part of the law was the Day of Atonement. It was the highest holy day of the Jewish people. And they would, uh, you know, the priest would go in and he would lay his hands and so forth. And the sin was transferred from the people to the scapegoat, you know. And the scapegoat was let out into the wilderness. And, you know, and, and the people's sins were covered over on the Day of Atonement for a year. But the day after the Day of Atonement, their sins started accumulating again, right? And they would live for the whole year thinking about how they had offended God and trying to uh, observe the law and, and all the rest of it. And, um, but notice, if you will, in this first verse, he says, um, for since the law is not the reality of the things to come, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Now, We can study in between, but when you get to the 14th verse in Hebrews chapter 10, here's what it says. For by a single offering, meaning Jesus, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. (laughs) Perfected. Now, there's not much that's perfect about me. Right? I looked really hard. I couldn't think of one thing that's perfect about me, except this. I have a perfect salvation. My salvation is perfect because it's not based on me. It's based on the gift that God has given to me in Jesus. 
There's nothing perfect about me. In fact, um, it reminds me of a story of, um, I don't know if you heard about this, but there's the chairman of a board of a Fortune 500 company uh, who was driving down the freeway in California. And uh, the chairman of the board and his wife, were, uh, they were together in the car and they're driving and they're pretty far away from any civilization or whatever. And all of a sudden the chairman of the board recognizes the gas tank is empty. The little light's on and it gauges way to the bottom and so forth. And so he and his wife start looking all over the place to see if they can find a gas station. And off in the distance, they see this little gas station absolutely in the middle of no place on this side road. And they're able to navigate, get off the freeway, uh, get onto that side road and go to the gas station. And so the chairman of the board gets out of the, he parks his car, he gets out of the car, fill it with high test, please. I think he was driving a Porsche. But he uh, gets out of the car tells the attendant, attendant comes out and says, would you please fill the car? And so uh, then he goes to the restroom. And uh, when he comes out of the restroom, he notices that his wife has gotten out of the car and she's talking to the gas station attendant, right, who's, uh, he thinks, a total stranger, and she's very animated, and her hands are going and they're laughing together and so forth, and they're having this very friendly you know, kind of conversation, and he's kind of bothered by it. It's like, it's not like my wife to get out of the car and be talking to a stranger like that much and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, so they get in the car, they take off, and, and the chairman of the board looks at his wife and he says, did you know that guy? And uh, she's like, yeah, we went to high school together. Oh, he said, uh, I bet you're really glad that you married the chairman of the board and not him. Otherwise, you know, uh, you'd have been living with somebody who's pumping gas their whole life in the middle of no place, you know, kind of thing. So his wife looks at him and says, honey, if I'd have married him, he'd be chairman of the board and you'd be pumping gas. (laughs) I think my wife told me that story. (laughs) So you see... If you weren't married to Jesus, if you didn't have an intimate relationship with Jesus, you'd be out in left field, but it's because of our relationship with Christ that we can live with this burden lifted off of us and live with the freedom that enables us to embrace the life that Jesus calls abundant. And so ask yourself this question. I think this is an interesting question, right? When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins were future? All of them, right? Unless you're more than 2,000 years old. I mean, all of your sins were future. So if Jesus died to forgive all of your sins 2,000 years ago, Why do you think it's only your past sins and not your future sins or your present sins that are covered? It just doesn't make any sense, right? All of our sins were future when Jesus died on the cross. And so uh, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system and so forth in in Hebrews chapter 9 and uh, verse 26 and stuff, if you want to follow along in in your Bible, um, it's, it's really pretty interesting to compare 
the Old Testament and to see if we're still living under some Old Testament thinking uh, versus the freedom of the gospel. In um, verse 26, uh, here's what we read. Um, Nor was the sacrifice to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and then after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, but not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. To save those whose sins have been washed away and are so excited about the future that God has promised us, they're eagerly waiting for this Savior to come from heaven so that we can uh, embrace our whole inheritance. Uh, I think the Old Testament's like living with a credit card. You know what I mean? Like a credit card, you can use your credit card and relieve the debt, pass over the debt for a time, but the debt still remains. It just gets transferred to the bill, right? Sooner or later, you got to pay the debt. Well, when Jesus came, he paid the bill. He paid the debt. It's over. We don't use a credit card anymore. We go directly to the source, and it's a freedom that's been given to us, a gift that's been uh, granted to us, right? Um, Tell me if you would agree with this statement. If a person ends up in hell, it's not because of their sin. It's because of their unbelief in the Savior who died for their sin and already paid for it. Agree or disagree, right? Now, that puts a whole spin on a lot of the way we think about other people and frees us up, I think, to go with the good news of the gospel and let people know, I don't care what you've done. God's already covered it. We've got some really good news for you. Well, uh, when it comes to sin, it's finished, right? And uh, let me just read a couple of these verses in in Hebrews chapter 10 and I'll be done. But uh, since the law has but a shadow, Hebrews 10, um, of what's to come, it can never really, uh, by the same sacrifices offered over and over again every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, uh, would they not have stopped offering the sacrifices since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, listen to this, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Not even conscious of the sin anymore because it's gone. That's what the author of Hebrews is asking, right? But in these sacrifices, year after year on the Day of Atonement and whatever, there is a reminder of sin every year. And it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Then he goes on. Behold, I have come, Jesus said, to do your will, to do God's will. And through this, Jesus abolished the first order in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Every priest stands daily 
at service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. It is finished. The priest stands every day, day after day after day, doing all these sacrifices. But when Christ finished, he sat down. For by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I mean, that's just, you and I have an element of perfection. I know your spouse doesn't believe it, but, you know, take them to this passage. Okay? And then he says this, where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. If you've done something really bad in your life and you're trying to work it off and you're trying so hard to be good and uh, to offset, you know, the bad that you did by doing more good than bad, and, and I've talked to so many people and that's, what they're, that's how they live their life. They, they can't embrace the abundant life that Jesus came to give because they're trying to work off their debt, which has already been paid, and nobody's really ever told them. And I know you're worried. Like, if you tell people all their sins are forgiven, they're just going to go and sin more, right? No. Here's where you're wrong. The author of Hebrews says it like this. The Holy Spirit, when he gets in your life, uh, also bears witness to us that a new covenant has been made by God with us. After those days, declares the Lord, I'm going to put my laws on people's hearts and write them on their minds. You are going to be changed from the inside out, not from laws and the outside in. I, by my Holy Spirit, I'm going to get inside of your spirit and I'm going to so impress your heart and so impress your mind with the truth and the reality of forgiveness that you're going to be a transformed. You are going to take on the nature of the divine being. Wow. The abundant life. And uh, it's resourced in God himself. Okay, um, let me just end with an illustration, okay? When I was a kid, um, my mom used to make homemade applesauce. You ever do that? And uh, I can remember helping as a little kid. I, I called it help, but I don't know what she called it. But And it was a process. I mean, it was a mess in the kitchen and so forth. And so we had these glass jars, right? And uh, they had a glass top on them. And... Um, we would take those glass jars and they fit into this basket thing and my mom would boil a bunch of water and take that basket and drop those jars down into that boiling water. I'm like, what are you doing? You know? She's like, well, we're sterilizing. We're cleaning out the jars because if there's any bacteria in there, we're going to put some really good fruit inside of that jar, right? And we don't want it to go bad. We don't want it to spoil. So we're going to clean it out. We're going to get rid of all the bacteria and so forth. That was step one. And then step two, we had to prepare the apples. We had to core them out. We had to cut them up. We had this cone, and you had to cook them. We had this cone-shaped thing, right? And it had all holes in the side of it. And we used to dump the apples inside there after they were cooked. Had this big stick in the middle, and that was my job. And you go around like this, and you squeeze the sauce through those little holes, and you get all the gookas in the middle and so forth. You get rid of that and so forth. And then you would take that, uh, you know, add some spice to it, uh, add some cinnamon and sugar and whatever when mom wasn't looking, a little more sugar, a little more cinnamon and so forth because I realized that's, you know, would help. And then fill the jars. Then we had to fill the jars right to the top, right? And then we had these uh, rubber gasket things. I still remember. They were like an orange color, right? 
And uh, as I got older, I was strong enough to pull those babies over the mouth of the jar. You had to do that. And then you'd uh, whack down the top of it on the applesauce, and um, it would seal it. Just like the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, when he comes in your life, seals that new life in, keeps the bad out, keeps the good in, until you're ready to let it out and share it, which is the whole purpose of filling it up in the first place. And it was really, really good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that, uh, you know, you come and first you clean us, you forgive us, you get rid of all of our sin, past, present, and future. Wow. And uh, then, Father, you fill us with your spirit, and then you seal us so that the bad stays out and the good stays in. Until we're ready to open that jar and share, Father, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the abundant life that Jesus can give us. And uh, I pray, Father, that we would keep this in mind when we try to understand ourselves and uh, understand why we're here and what our mission is and that you, Father, would remind us that we are, in fact, forgiven and that for those people who struggle, Father, with uh, actually feeling the reality of that forgiveness, that you would help, that your spirit would uh, help raise the faith level to the point where we would believe that what happened on the cross is effective for us and makes the way for your spirit to uh, embody us for Jesus' sake. Amen.